Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And I know, Lynn, I can never say Luke right, but that's my best shot. But it's the gospel of Luke, the third one. Um, Let's read together the first 10 verses. Luke 19, 1 through 10. A bad person with a good ending. That is what we're going to read about. Because of grace, a bad person ended up well. And he entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay in your house. And he hurried down and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Grumblers are always in any congregation. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, bless your word read. Bless your word explained. Receive our praises and our worship. We offer it to you in the name of Jesus. Send your spirit to make your word effective. Because we cannot. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to turn 60 soon, so let me give you this warning. I repeat myself. You probably have heard this story. There are visitors. Let them pretend that it's new, okay? There was this fellow when I was a child growing up who was the definition of what you can call a rogue. This guy had experience stealing He was a drug dealer. He was in and out of jail frequently. And he was the dread and fear of every father, mother, and person in my neighborhood. He was my neighbor. And he was my friend. I taught him English and some other things. And he even offered me protection against bullies. Because I've always been chased by bullies. Even in this church, God sent Victor to bully me. It's a story of my life. Komatsu, in church, everywhere I go, there's always a guy chasing me. Well, he told me, if you ever have a problem, and, and if I find him, I'll say, get that deacon. He's my bully. But he said, if you ever have a problem in the court, playing baseball, in the field, whatever, talk to me and we'll fix it. Never did. Because I didn't want his fixing But 
this person was by all stretch of the imagination undesirable, unattractive, difficult to deal with, and it was embarrassing to be his friend. I actually would not want my high school friends who were people from the upper crust, I was a poor guy studying with the rich, ever to find out that I had this friend. I would never take him to activities where my high school friends would be because it was embarrassing to be his friend. Jesus was the friend of those whom it was embarrassing to be a friend with. He spoke grace to the woman at the well. He spoke peace to the gathering demoniac. He accepted the harlot of the town of the village to wash his feet, dry them with his hair, with her hair, and even kiss his feet. Jesus was not uncomfortable around sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. And this passage is a powerful, beautiful display of that reality of Jesus being the friend of sinners. Because the gospel puts life upside down. You're visiting. Do you think all these people here are just nice, clean people who lead good lives? Uh-uh. You came to a hospital. You came to Cornerstone Bible Church Hospital where sinners, starting with the ones who stand up here, are just sinners in need of grace and of forgiveness and of being reminded that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Luke uses the word and in the passage, and I don't want to read it to you again, but if we read it, you will notice how he uses that conjunction all the time. And, 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 and he's like driving you the passage in a crescendo, in a mountain, and then he comes to the peak, and then with the end, he stops it and slows it down, and he ends in this summary of the gospel, the summary of the theme of the Bible. What's the Bible about? This. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. And that is what this passage is about. Now, I, I split it into scenes. And the screen has the scenes. You can read them. Those are the takes Luke made. If there were pictures or if it was a movie or it was a novel or whatever it is. Those are the chapters of the passage. That's what you see takes place in this text of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Let's take a look at the first scene. A bad candidate, I call him. A bad candidate to become a disciple. If we look at your profiles, at your personal profiles, who would we want to be disciples of Cornerstone of the Lord and be members of Cornerstone Bible Church? In some churches, they want good people to represent the church well. <laughs> Jesus looked for that. For the worst kind. To represent God's mercy and grace well. And here's a bad candidate to become a disciple. For he was a publican. A publican in the days of Jesus was a tax collector. 
Now, the way taxes were collected by publicans is not like, if you're like me, OCD, I know a guy back there whose OCD is already calling me, hey, are you doing your taxes already? That's for April 15, dude, be patient. But if you're OCD like me, you're already gathering your numbers and wanting to be ready for April 15, and you just fill your form and submit your tax forms to see if you get a refund or if you have to pay more. Well, in those days, it was not that way. You had some individuals who would bid to be tax collectors. And those who would won the bid, whomever offered more, would win becoming the tax collector of the region. Those were the publicans. Now, they, were, they already paid in advance. They needed to recover their money and then add some profit. And the way they do it was collecting toll, road toll, tax, and also collecting transportation of goods tax. In fact, in Capernaum, where Jesus lived, there was a big toll gate that people coming north to south or south to north would stop there and pay taxes because it was a road to bring merchandise. That's how Jesus' fame became spread out through the areas because they would go through Capernaum, pay taxes, but in the paying of taxes, they would talk about this teacher, master, prophet, man who made miracles in town. So these publicans were by nature tradesmen, liars, extortionists. They tried to collect as much as they could because their deal was recovering their investment and then making as much money as they could during the time they won that bid to collect taxes. That's why John the Baptist told them, do not collect more than what is due because they were known for their trickery, for their treacherous character, for their avarice, for their greed, for their lying, for their exploiting of people. And then in the case of Israel, that's the way the Roman Empire paid for their army expenses throughout the regions. With those taxes the regions collected that were paid in advance by the tax collectors, they would cover for the army expenses. So imagine the feeling of having to pay taxes to these, to these traitors to pay for the oppressing Roman army. It's already aggravating enough to have the express lanes on I-95, isn't it? When I moved here, those white lanes were all of a sudden reduced to accommodate for these two and charge an arm and a leg for you to supposedly go faster. And that's already aggravating enough. Now imagine that if they told you, oh, and the express lane, by the way, is to support the Cuban government or to support the government in Russia. That's how a Jew felt about a tax collector, a publican. They were not only exploiters, but they were paying the foreign oppressor. And Zacchaeus was not just a publican. He was a chief publican in Jericho. Jericho, the palm city where you would traverse if you were coming from Jerusalem to Judea or vice versa, from Judea to Jerusalem, you would go by or be near Jericho. This time Jesus was passing by Jericho. And here's Zacchaeus, the rich chief publican who had another problem. He was rich. Is there a problem with being rich? Oh, yes. And I'm not a Democrat, but there's a problem with being rich. Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we try to dress it and make it nice. Well, you know, it means if you love riches, 
Can you have riches without loving them? Can you have a 401k without checking how is it doing in light of the tumblings of the market? Can you have a house without checking how is my neighborhood doing to check my equity in the home? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. And in this room, we are rich. We have homes to go to. We have food to eat, lots of food to eat. Actually, some of us are always on a diet and walking and exercising because we eat too much and move too little. So we are rich. Jesus says, how difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This was Zacchaeus. problem with riches is they provide a false sense of security. Debts paid for, no major issues, no major problems, nest egg built I'm pretty much covered my social security is enough my savings are enough my pension is enough I'm well I don't have to worry for my golden years I don't know what's the golden thing about being all filled with pains and aches but anyways that's the way they call it let's respect that those who are rich have this good sense of security nothing wrong with that if you like Dave Ramsey I like him too nothing wrong with that but this good sense of security comes with a bad an evil sense of pride. That's why Psalm 49 says, those who are rich trust in themselves. They trust in the riches. They rest on the riches they have. And they are even surrounded by those who approve their sayings. Yes, boss, you're right. Remember Carlos in Comasso was the one who told me this great phrase, the boss is always right. Yes, don't argue with your boss. True. And they have all these people. Yes, boss, whatever you say. The company is going broke. But yes, boss, you're right. And those who are rich is filled with that sense of power and entitlement. Proverbs says that the poor man uses entreaties. He beseeches. He pleads with or pleads for. The rich man speaks rashly. When I was little, I have this very vivid image. You're eating your dinner, and we were poor, but there's always somebody who's poorer than you. We were poor, but we ate, we ate three, times a, three times a day. And you would hear this voice, and I have to say it in Spanish because I don't know how to say that in English, but I'll translate. It was a little boy, seven, eight, nine, and you would hear the, Señor, regáleme algo. Sir... Please give me something. And it was a heart-wrenching thing that you're having your dinner and you hear a poor child pleading, please give me something. Sometimes when I'm really, really, really down and needy, I tell the Lord, give me something, please. I even use the voice of the kids to appeal to him. But six months ago or four months ago, I was in this meeting, this gathering with my 42 anniversary high school reunion. And we were gathering at one of the high-end private clubs in Santo Domingo. <laughs> my high school friends were, were rich kids, and now they are, many of them are rich, wealthy, powerful individuals. And I was talking to one of them, and one of the waiters come and says, what can I serve you? And he asked for a beverage. I don't know what. I don't know anything about alcohol. But for the sake of argument, let's say that he said, do you have whatever brand of whiskey? 
And the waiter says, no, but we have. And he interrupted him harshly. I ask you, do you have? And I felt shrunk in my soul. But I remember Solomon. The rich man speaks harshly. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He had every reason on the planet not to be interested in religion. But he wanted to see Jesus, the passage says. For some reason, he wanted to see Jesus. Or was it not perhaps, and I say it tongue in cheek, that Jesus wanted to see him. And then we find verse 3 about the impediments Zacchaeus had. He was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. I like the word Elikia Mikros. That's where micro comes. Remember when my son was about my height. It's not a it's not any height. I'm a short guy, I know. But I remember when my, height, my son was one-third of my height. <laughs> and and I, would used to call, I used to call him the puny man, and he hated it. To this day, I call him the puny man. Hey, puny man, what's up? Micros. Little. When I think of Zacchaeus, for some reason, jo- Danny DeVito comes to mind. So I imagine the penguin or any movie of Danny DeVito, and there is Zacchaeus. The evil, rich guy, chief publican, is, I want to see Jesus. But he is hated by the multitude. Nobody wants him. Nobody wants to deal with him. And there's a crowd waiting to see the parade. And there comes Zacchaeus, and nobody's going to take a look at him. So he runs ahead to fix his problem. People were busy waiting for the parade. You, you've gone to Disney with your children, many of you. And and that greatest moment of the evening or the morning, the parade, I used to have to carry mine in my shoulders. The other day, Maria Luisa and I were at the dedication of a church temple. Actually, um, Roger's church. And they had these 2,000, 2,500 people there at the dedication. The whole orchestra is playing. The whole platform is filled with all of those musicians. And there's Rogers leading his orchestra and his choir and his special instruments. And there's the lyrics. <laughs> but there was a column and Maria Luisa was sitting by me. She says, I cannot read the lyrics. I says, do you want me to get you on my shoulders? And she says, are you crazy? How are you going to get me on my shoulders here? But it's a desperation. She wanted to see the lyrics. She couldn't. That's the case. Now, who in the right mind who put a short, smelly man on their shoulders to see Jesus. Nobody would. Side note, if you want to get serious with God, depose of any illusions of being popular with the crowds. The crowds hated Zacchaeus. They were not too fond of Jesus either. And they were not going to help him see Jesus on their own accord. But there we go. Zacchaeus had to overcome his pride and his dignity. And why do I say that? Because the text says in verse 4 that he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. 
Now, in that culture, even in ours, but we are nowhere different. I have a friend who's like about 57, and he's always going to the doctor because he wants to pretend that he's 37 or 27. But that's another story. In that culture and in regular people, there's a kind of dignity that older men have. It would be weird if you saw me running around in the social area as our children do, or if you see me climbing on trees just for the fun of it, as I used to do when I was a little boy. This old man, deposed of his dignity, ran ahead of the crowd to climb on a tree in order to see Jesus. You cannot come to Jesus with your dignity. Get it clear. If you want to come to Jesus, you have to die to self, whatever it is. If you think you're going to come to Jesus on your terms, it doesn't happen. His terms. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, die to self, pick up his cross, and follow me. And then Jesus stops. <laughs> That's the next scene. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stop in your house. I can't help read my Bible as if I were watching a movie. Maybe I watched too many cartoons when I was a kid, and now when I read the Bible... Apologies for anyone who's reformed and serious, but I, I see the movie. And there's Jesus coming with the crowd, and all of a sudden he stops. Come down, quickly. I'm staying at your house. But Jesus stops at the right spot where Zacchaeus is. He knew somebody was interested in seeing him because he knew he was going to see him. Notice, please, who invites who. I don't like to speak evil of other people. I don't like to speak bad of other Christians, of other preachers. But I'm not going to let this one go. I'm sorry. I have to swing at this one. If you play baseball, you know that there's one that you have to swing at it. Even if you hit, I mean, swing and a miss. This one I'm not going to let go. There's a lot of people out there, the majority, who uses Revelation 3.20 out of context and heretically. Invite Jesus into your heart. He is knocking. Open the door. Not true. That has a context to a church that was actually in trouble, that is being condemned, the church in Laodicea. And Jesus is telling them, you've kicked me out of your congregation. If you want to get it fixed, you better bring me in now. Because with your disobedience, my spirit is not there. That's the context of the passage. Repent to a church. It is not invite Jesus into your heart. He's he outside waiting for you. It is God who invites. Isaiah 55.1 To those who are thirsty, come and drink freely of the water. To those who are hungry, come and drink and eat of the bread. It is Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come to anyone who's thirsty, come drink of the fountain of life. It is God who invites sinners. 
He is not waiting to be invited. Jesus says, come to me if you are exhausted, if you're tired, if you're burdened, come to me. I will give you rest. There's nowhere in Scripture where he's knocking on the door of your heart waiting for you to open and invite him. That's a heresy. That's a side note. Jesus is not surprised in the scene. He doesn't look up casually. Oh, what's the old man doing there? He stops where Zacchaeus is and says, Zacchaeus, by name, come down. Hurry. I must stay in your house tonight. Invite me to dinner. He invites himself. And then I love it. The third scene is the murmuring multitude. When they saw it, they began to grumble saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. There's humor in this scene. Because the word used for grumbling, and you can look it up yourself. This is a time that you don't need to be an expert. You just look at a good lexicon dictionary. It's a word that implies an onomatopoeic sound to express doubt or discomfort. Dominicans have an expression. Back in my day, I know things have changed, but 35, 40 years ago, there was a check when people used to write checks that was called the ox check or the bull check. Because if the person gives you a check and you know that person is not trustworthy, you would look at the check and say, mm, expressing your doubt. That's the meaning of the word. It's a sound that expresses this deep, mm, or, ooh, that I know that, Americans don't do that a lot, so I apologize if you're a white Caucasian. I don't know about, about my, the, 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 the culture of my, of my beloved Veronica. But in our culture, you, you sound things. Maybe the, the Arabs taught us those things. So when the multitude sees that Jesus invites himself to the house of Danny DeVito in, Jer- in Jericho, they said, mm, this guy's a prophet. They grumbled. Self-righteousness grumbles at mercy. Self-righteousness grumbles at mercy. Self-righteous people don't like to see when God blesses those who are not that righteous. church where Roger comes from in 1992 met in a little house at a low middle class neighborhood in Santo Domingo. When their pastor Otto started, they were 30. And during their anniversary, Otto says, yeah, the Lord changed our membership. Three months later, we were 15 because 15 people left with a new pastor. And today they are they said, what, 2,100, you said. 2,100. Of course. 
because they have the music. And people who do not love the truth go for the music. Because self-righteous people grumble when God blesses without reason. People flock to that place because God was pleased to fill them. And I asked Otto, tell me something, brother. What's the percentage of conversions in your church? And I didn't understand why until I figured out those statistics. He started, oh... I'm expecting he will say 50% are conversions, the other 50% from other churches. So about 98% conversions, and maybe we have 2% coming from other churches. They don't recycle Christians. They go out there to the ocean to fish fish. So this is not gimmicks. <laughs> this is not recycling believers who are coming from better doctrine. This is, no, we go out there <laughs> where sinners are and preach to them and teach them and disciple them. And here's a case of a multitude grumbling at God extending his mercy to this man. Why did he do it? We don't know, but he wanted to do it. And then we start to find Zacchaeus' faith. That's the fourth scene. Faith in Zacchaeus was not just a proposition. It was a confession. Oh, yes, we have the 1689 confession of faith. I'm not talking about that. That's a proposition. You ask, what do you guys believe? What's your doctrine? Well, here's a document that summarizes what we believe, 1689 Confession. Awesome. Do we agree 100% with it? It depends on you. I don't agree 100% with it, but I'd say, yeah, that's pretty much. It represents where I am. But Zacchaeus' faith was not a confession or a profession of propositional truths. It was a confession of sin. First thing he says, behold, Lord. Here's a Jew who wouldn't call Lord anything, anyone but Yahweh, the unpronounceable name, even in our Psalms, you find the word Adonai because they didn't want to write Yahweh. And he says, behold, Adonai. Behold, Lord, I know who you are. I receive you as God on earth. Half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have stolen anything from anyone, if I have collected more taxes from those agricultural men who cross through town and I charge them more than what they are, than what it's due, I will return it quadruplicated. That was his profession of faith. He came to Jesus. And after coming to Jesus, he walked on those good works that God prepared beforehand as you read, brother. Thank you for reading the whole passage because that's the way it should be read. Did he have to do it? Jesus didn't ask him. Jesus didn't say to him, well, now, Zacchaeus, time to prove your faith. (laughs) came out of him my answer is he should have if he could have sometimes you cannot return or restore the harm you caused if you stole more than what you can pay back or if you killed a person or if you sexually assaulted and raped a person or whatever it is you did that is horrendous and heinous 
God will forgive, but you will not be able to restore, perhaps. But Zacchaeus could, and he did. It's fascinating, and, and I'm gonna, I think it's going to appear on the screen. I don't want to go through it. But those are the requirements of the law for restoration. Depending on the sin, your ox did something, paid five times. It was a sheep, paid four times. If you, if you stole, paid double. If you did a bad administration, return what you did bad. If, if you breached trust, return the amount, plus 20% interest. The law had different regulations for that. Zacchaeus did more than the law. He said, I'll take half of my money and give it to the poor, and I will quadruplicate whatever I extortioned from people. Do you know why? Because the Spirit leads to holiness. The Spirit leads to keep the law and to obey the law. By the Spirit, we say, oh, how I love your law. Yes, my flesh betrays me 99, 100% of the time because the flesh cannot be redeemed, but the Spirit leads me to holiness. God made Zacchaeus obey the law when he gave him light and regenerated him. That's Scripture. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that has that power the law is good, but the law is powerless against sin. You're raising little children? Hammer the gospel. Hammer grace. Hammer Christ. Because that's the power of God against sin. The law has no power against sin. It is grace, according to Titus 2, that makes us renounce ungodliness and worldly desires, and live soberly and godly before God. Grace does that. Not a person yelling at you and giving you techniques to overcome the flesh. I had a sermon on that this morning, or a, piece, a, a portion of a sermon. Techniques to overcome the flesh. Are you kidding me? Now, the person was correct in what he was saying. But what I told Maria Luis is, problem is not the correctness, it's the emphasis. There's no rules to overcome the flesh. <laughs> There's a spirit who makes us live according to God's will and leads us into holiness. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That is not imposed by power, by politics, by military strength. History proves the method doesn't work. It is grace. It is a gospel. You want to redeem the culture? You want to transform the country? You want to change your company? You want to change your family? It is grace that has the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that has that power. And then, of course, when grace shows up in the scene, we have the scandal of grace. Because the people were saying, he has gone to the house of Zacchaeus. He has gone to the house of a sinner. What kind of a savior? What kind of a prophet is this? Where's his sense of morality? Why aren't his friends people of dignity? That's the scandal of grace. Where's the penance? When Jesus says salvation has come into this house. But where's the evidence? Where's the procedure? Where's the steps to, to make you worthy of salvation? There's none. Because where there is repentance, there is no penance. 
This is a true story. It happened in this church. Somebody committed a grievous sin. Grievous. And somebody left this church because that person was not disciplined. And when the pastor, who was not me, asked, but that person repented. This other person said, yes, but should have been disciplined. Well, discipline is not to purify the church. <laughs> the word discipline don't even ex- doesn't even exist in the Bible. The whole process is discipleship. The whole process is to simply state, gain your brother, your sister. If they repent, you want them. That's the end of it. That's the purpose. And then Jesus' absolution is beautiful. He says, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And Zacchaeus became an instrument of grace for his family. I love that. Fathers, talking to fathers, to men. And in this church, we don't have this deal of how do you feel? You are men or you're a woman. End. How do, I, how do you identify? You are identified by your chromosomes. So men who are fathers talking to you. You are the primary, primordial, main instrument to bring the kingdom of God into your homes. Stop letting your wives be the spiritual backbone of the house. Stop that your wife reads and knows more theology than you. Because that is your calling. Your wife may be a neurosurgeon. Awesome. Your wife may be a pilot, a captain in the Air Force. She can fly an F-22. Awesome. But at home, you are the instrument to bring grace to your children. You are the instrument to instruct and to teach and to be an example of the gospel as Zacchaeus was. And Jesus says, he too is a child of Abraham by faith because he believed in the promised seed. He believed in that one who was promised to Abraham, Jesus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. That's the summary of the Bible. When you read your Bibles, even if you're reading a genealogy in Chronicles, remember this. This is the subject. The subject is the Son of Man, Jesus, came to save and to, and, and to seek whomever was lost. Whether you're reading it from the Old Testament into the future or you're reading it from the New Testament into the past. Jesus expressed the whole purpose of Scripture and of his mission. I love the way John Wesley put this. The son of man, or I'm sorry, the son of Rahab, the harlot from Jericho. Remember that story? He was a harlot from Jericho. The son of Rahab, Zacchaeus, was rescued in Jericho by the son of man. Jesus came to rescue the great, 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 great. We don't know if they were relatives, but they were from the same town. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to see Jesus, to find out who is this Jesus 
Let me climb a tree. Jesus climbed another tree, the cross, because he knew who Zacchaeus was. And he knew the cross was the only solution for Zacchaeus' sins. I don't care who you are. I don't know all of you. I know that not all of you know me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what people think of you. I don't care if you have an arrest warrant or whomever you are, whatever you've done. I know one thing, and I offer it to you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. May God bless his word. Father, bless your word, we pray. Be glorified and reach out to us and save us. We are lost. Some of us were and are no longer. Some of us are still lost. Wherever we are in this assembly, reach out to us and save us. In Jesus' name, amen.